Welcome to the JIMD podcast. Today we're discussing clinical trials in mitochondrial disease. Hello, I'm James Nurse, the social media editor at the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease, and we're continuing our podcast series looking at recent publications within the journal. It's a pleasure this morning to be joined by Professor Shamima Rahman, a professor of pediatric metabolic medicine at the Genetics and Genomic Medicine Department of UCL and Great Ormond Street Institute of Child Health, and an editor at the journal. Shamima, good morning. How are you? I'm fine, thanks, and I'm very excited to be talking to you today, James. Thank you for joining me. We're talking about your recent paper, Moving Towards Clinical Trials for Mitochondrial Disease. Um, I heard you talk about this topic at the SSIEM Symposium last year, and I'm grateful that you're able to share your expertise on this subject today. I've talked with colleagues of yours, Professor Gorman and Professor um, Bindoff, uh, about mitochondrial disease in another episode. We haven't really said what we mean by that. I mean, what is mitochondrial disease and why is it so hard to treat? So mitochondrial disease is a group of um, inherited metabolic diseases. Um, they are genetic conditions that affect the function of the mitochondrion in making energy through the process of oxidative phosphorylation. We now know that at least 1,000 or maybe even 1,500 different genes are needed to make proteins for the function of mitochondria. And already we've, we've linked almost 400 of those genes to mitochondrial disease. So in the end, it may be a group of more than a thousand diseases. And I think that's one of the huge challenges in diagnosis and also in treatment. It's, it's difficult to imagine that we can have a single treatment to cure so many different diseases. That's such a huge number. It's so hard to get your head around and almost the same size again as the field of inherited metabolic disease as a whole. Although it's complex, there are some of these conditions that are amenable to relatively simple treatments, aren't there? Exactly. And that's one of the um, most important challenges in making a diagnosis as, as promptly as we can for an affected child or adult, that there are some conditions where it's the transport or manufacture of a vitamin or cofactor that's the underlying problem. And if we supply pharmacological doses of the appropriate vitamin or cofactor to those affected individuals, then we can hope to have a very good response in, in some cases. So examples would be children and adults who aren't able to make vitamin-like cofactor called coenzyme Q10, which is extremely important in the function of the mitochondrion because it has two big roles. One is passing the energy across the mitochondrial um, respiratory chain, which is essential for making the energy, the ATP in the mitochondria. But the coenzyme Q10 also has a very important role in working as an antioxidant. The reason that is important is because when the mitochondrion is not working properly, we have a buildup of something called um, reactive oxygen species. And although those are good molecules that are important in signaling and other functions, if the balance isn't right, then that can exacerbate the mitochondrial dysfunction. And so the coenzyme Q10 does have an added benefit of fine-tuning that balance of oxidant uh, and antioxidants. And, and then if we think about riboflavin, it's the cofactor for um, the respiratory chain complex one, which is the biggest enzyme involved in energy generation in the mitochondrion. 
And there is some emerging evidence that high doses of riboflavin can stabilise the complex one enzyme in those cases. And we also know that there are other conditions that respond to riboflavin. And I think it's this sort of success with vitamins that's given rise to people talking about a mitococktail and, or mitochondrial cocktail of drugs used in children with mitochondrial disorders. Is there any value in sort of untargeted treatment like that? That's a really good question and, and very difficult to answer definitively. We know that for those patients who are not able to transport or metabolize those vitamins and cofactors I've mentioned, which also include riboflavin and uh, thiamine and biotin, we can see sometimes very dramatic responses to those agents. However, in the vast majority of people who have a mitochondrial disease, uh, it's extremely unlikely that any of those vitamins or cofactors will produce a dramatic benefit. And we know from systematic reviews of clinical trials, the few clinical trials that have been performed, such as the Cochrane systematic reviews, that there really isn't any evidence, um, strong evidence for benefit for any of those agents, including coenzyme Q10, in the majority of patients with mitochondrial disease. So I think that vitamin cocktails aren't used so much in this country. Um, I'm speaking from the United Kingdom, obviously, today. So... I'm not aware that using a large number of, of different vitamins and cofactors in a single individual improves the mitochondrial function in a stepwise fashion. And it can be very difficult to untangle which agent has helped a particular child or adult if we start multiple agents at the same time. And so I'm a big advocate of using one vitamin or cofactor and then adding another and probably never get to a, a large enough number to call a cocktail. I probably would just use coenzyme Q10 and sometimes riboflavin for most of my patients. However, as there isn't any evidence for or against the use of cocktails, I think that that can be a reasonable approach to take as long as we're not doing any harm. And on that note, I, I would like to mention that there is some evidence from animal studies that using too much of an antioxidant can actually cause problems, maybe because we are impairing that very delicate balance of the reactive oxygen species that I mentioned earlier. You, you mentioned in your answer there about the the Cochrane review, which I think concentrated on a very small number of, of trials um, for children with mitochondrial disorders. Obviously, study design is, is a challenge. What study types are used in, in these kind of conditions and what progress is being made on this? So, um, historically, um, there were very few trials. And these the Cochrane reviews, one in 2006 and one in 2012, um, had a very critical look at previous trials and what they found was that very few were randomised, double-blinded, controlled trials of the sort that we'd like to see um, to produce strong evidence for efficacy of an agent. And in fact, it was a disappointing number of good trials that they identified, only a dozen or so in the most recent Cochrane review. And there, other problems that emerged were that many of the trials had heterogeneous groups of patients and with different genetic and um, clinical diagnoses. And so it's very difficult to draw conclusions from them. And the other thing, speaking as a paediatrician, that, that is disappointing is that there were very few children in any of those historical clinical trials. And I think that is something 
that I'm excited about that we're we're moving forward with now that pharmaceutical companies and the FDA and the EMA are increasingly recognizing that it's important that children have their own clinical trials and that they are not many adults and that we may see a different response to treatments in children to adults. Obviously in medicine we talk about the randomized double blind control trial as being the, the gold standard trial design for for new for, for treatments but the uh, some of the study design within mitochondrial disease and uh, inherited metabolic disorders in general often doesn't follow that format. What sort of studies are you know people doing to, to look for, for new treatments? You're absolutely right that um, it is very difficult to um, perform a randomized double-blind control trial in such a challenging group of diseases. Some of the problems are that each of the gene defects I've mentioned may only have a few affected patients, and so you're not going to have a large number in the trial. And then if there are only a few patients, to then be randomizing, that reduces the number even more. So one of the things that we and others across the globe have been looking at is whether we can use historical controls, so natural history data from patients previously affected by the same disease as controls in a clinical trial. And that's just one of the alternative strategies that's being championed by physicians and pharmaceutical companies, patients and patient advocacy groups across the world. And there have been a series of meetings with the FDA discussing how to do better clinical trials for this group of patients. Another aspect of this that's very important is deciding what we should measure. I've told you how many different diseases we're looking at. And as you can imagine, there are very many different symptoms and signs. And an individual patient may have as many as 16 different symptoms. And we obviously can't measure all of those. Um, so trying to find those best outcome measures is, is a focus of intense attention at the moment. And I think that is going to be a critical factor in getting the future trials right and also exploring alternative trial designs. So far, um, there isn't a single perfect trial design that's emerged as being the one that we should all be using for all of these patients. But things that have been proposed as being helpful are maybe using composite measures and also the FDA is quite strong in advocating that treatment should help how a patient feels, functions or survives. And so those are really important to capture in the outcome measures. Um, so in the review, you separate the treatments that you are, you know, particularly highlight into sort of pharmacological strategies and genetic strategies. I know there's a number that you mention, and the paper should be available online for people to read. And I know that will be temporarily available open access. But are there any really kind of quite promising areas that you'd like to sort of focus on or highlight uh, today? That's another very good question. And what people will see when they look at the paper is that in Figure Three we have summarise the pipeline of, of the treatments ranging from the in vitro and animal studies all the way across from phase one and two and three trials to regulatory approval. And I'm very disappointed to say that at the moment there's only one agent that has approval and that's Ida Benone, but only for labour hereditary optic neuropathy. Some of the other trials, just a few, have got to phase three. But again, there has been a disappointment in the last a uh, few months because elamipratide, which is um, a mitochondrial membrane cardiolipin stabilizer, did perform a randomized double-blinded um, phase three trial, but unfortunately they weren't able to meet the primary endpoint. 
there are a number of other agents that have got through to phase two trials and we can see that phase three trials will be coming soon and most of those are for pharmacological agents. For genetic therapies we're further back in the pipeline but I think ultimately as we've seen for other uh, inborn metabolic diseases genetic therapies can be a very effective treatment The problem is that there are quite a lot of hurdles in the translational pipeline for these therapies. And it's quite daunting to think how we can bring gene therapies for 400 different genes to the clinic. And again, I think that we're going to need to explore innovative um, pipelines for translation to the clinic going forwards. And that's something that I am very excited about, how we're going to do this, working together with all the different stakeholders across the globe to make this happen. I mean, then I'm hoping that I'm going to speak to another author about sort of gene therapies um, in, a, in a later episode. Uh, I think a couple of years ago, everyone in the UK became an expert on nucleoside therapy um, in light or high profile case we had. Uh, I know nucleoside therapy is mentioned briefly in the article. I don't know if it's something that you'd be able to comment on further. So nucleoside therapy has um, not been subjected to a randomised or a blinded control trial, but it has been used on a named patient basis in a few centres around the world for a single disease, which is thymidine kinase 2 deficiency, which is one of the forms of mitochondrial DNA depletion syndrome. And that data was very promising. And I think this is a treatment that is going forward for that disease, TK2 deficiency. There's a lot of debate in the field about whether Nucleosides will be effective for other forms of mitochondrial DNA depletion caused by impaired nucleoside salvage, but at the moment we don't know yet for the other diseases. Something to watch. It, it feels like the progress in this field is moving very rapidly. You've commented on the, the progress that's been made in the last five years or so and, and looking forward sort of five years down the road. Of the advancements that you've seen, what is it that you're most excited about, would you say? What really I'm so pleased about is that as a, as a global community, we've been able to tackle the enormous diagnostic challenges for this group of diseases. We're not perfect yet, but I, I think that up to 50% of affected people can get a genetic diagnosis relatively rapidly nowadays compared to in the past when there was little hope of ever getting a genetic diagnosis. And I think having solved that big problem It's freed us all up to finally move into what's really important, and that's an era where we're focused on therapies and clinical trials. And that's what I'm so excited about, that we're actually trying to treat the diseases rather than still finding out what causes them, although there is some need to understand the disease mechanisms more, and particularly why um, some tissues are targeted in particular subtypes of mitochondrial disease, for example. But it is good to be finally looking at treatments. Yeah, no, it, it's always nice to be able to tell families what's going on. But it's, it would always be nicer to say this is what, what's wrong and this is how we're going to address that. So it's very pleasing to hear that you're driving forward in that direction. But obviously, there's lots of work to be done. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts around the paper. I hope this is something that people find interesting. Shmima, it's been uh, such a pleasure having you today. Thank you so much for your time and your uh, tolerance of the technical challenges today. Yes, okay. Thank you. Thanks, James. Bye. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can find all our previous episodes on our SoundCloud page or via your podcast app and hit subscribe to receive the latest episode straight to your phone. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.